So um, when I thought of this talk title, I thought, well, there's a whole teaching in the title, and do I really need to write a whole talk for it? So is there anyone who wasn't here last week? Um, welcome to you, and I'll try not to um, be too far ahead. Were those who were here last week, did you do your homework and look at your body in the mirror and that kind of stuff? Did you? Yeah. We might talk about that later. And did you sense into your experience on a physical level a little bit more than you might have otherwise? It's very interesting to live that way. Today, um, after Shyla and I uh, spent the afternoon together, I took a shower to come on the way to coming here. And I remembered to feel the shower instead of just sort of being in the shower in the normal mechanical way. And um, I realized that one of the messages of meditation is that that choice is available to us at any time. So even though you're not meditating now and you're getting ready to listen to me, just um, take note of what position your body is in. This is a very interesting uh, practice that you can take sort of snapshots of your body position at different times during the day. And you'll see that, um, like James Joyce's character, we live at a little distance from our bodies habitually. And our meditation practice can really help with this. And it tends to make life more interesting if we uh, live from the body's point of view. From the point of view of Buddhist practice, the body uh, contains a complete teaching. And the, if you sort of apprehend it correctly or follow a path using the body, um, the body can also be a teacher. I mean, normally we might think of the body as a teacher in some sense, but in this practice you can really um, make it your teacher by placing awareness directly in the body as we were doing in the guided meditation. The Buddha famously said, um, in this fathom-long body I declare is the origin of the world, the cessation of the world, and the path leading to the cessation of the world. Meaning that everything is in here. And when I hear that statement, I think, I used to think, well, it's as if um, the body experiences everything. And in a sense, the body uh, provides our, what would be called our enworldment. Like everything that we're seeing and feeling and hearing and touching actually comes through the sense organs um, that are sort of attached to the body here on both sides, some in the front, the tongue. Um, it's just very interesting to think of how uh, incredibly important it is. And as human beings, we're very interested in bodies, in our own bodies, in the bodies of others. Um, if you devote a little bit of thought to it, you'll see that in a sense it could be one of the most important things in your life, it's this body. The Buddha's impulse to freedom or enlightenment also came about from noticing uh, the nature of the body. As many of you know, the myth of um, or the story of his life, which has been, I think it's been compressed a little and made into like a, a um, kind of a package story. Not exactly a myth, but a little bit um, kind of much shorter than uh, what his development might have been. But in any case, it has been handed down that he was brought up as a very pampered person and um, kind of with every pleasure and every protection and um, really probably a rather hedonistic life of his day um, until he, 
the realities of illness, old age, and death were born in upon him. Um, in the in the story, it's that he his father confined him in the palace, and he uh, was too curious to stay stuck in there. And the father supposedly went um, went around and like had gardeners take away all the dead flowers and stuff so that he would never be displeased. And when he went out into the regular world or the marketplace, he saw people um, bent over with old age, um, a sick person and a dead person, and he sort of freaked out, uh, realizing immediately that the same thing would happen to him. And all of these things are physical events. The illness, old age, and death are death of the body, illness of the body, old aging of the body, or the trajectory that the body naturally goes through. And when we all started, we were really much smaller, right? When we first came out, we were little. Now we've grown, and then pretty soon we start hunching over, getting a little smaller again, and then eventually we die. And every single body does this, if it's lucky enough, to go through the whole trajectory. Some of them don't... um, get to finish or don't go through the whole curve. So this is really a very remarkable state of affairs, and Buddhism um, pays a lot of attention to this and looks at it in a very straightforward, truthful, and literalistic way. The Buddha's response when all of this, when he first saw all of this, was intense distress and compassion and an urge to understand the nature of what this process is. And that was where he uh, took up his spiritual path, is to try to understand what uh, this means, what our existence means. His first um, attempts to understand the nature of life, um, the nature of embodied life, I would say, were, were to perform a lot of austerities, like to see what happened if he didn't eat or drink for long periods of time, and to try to sort of suppress the body in a certain sense. He found that this was not a very productive, um, didn't produce the kind of uh, profound understanding that he was seeking. And then he ate some uh, rice milk pudding and sat down under a tree and actually began to inspect and look into the process of his body again as we were doing in the guided meditation um, and as Shyla has been teaching all of you, some of you for quite some time. Some of you have uh, surely heard this story or versions of this story before. But it seems that this process of actually observing the lived experience of the body and the breath is um, something that the Buddha contributed to humanity that didn't really exist before. And it's remarkable to me. When my first meditation retreat, I thought, I can't believe that it's so simple and it's also so non-obvious that you should pay attention to what's happening in your body and your mind moment to moment. Because it's already happening, but we're not paying attention to it. It's just completely bizarre that it would take some kind of spiritual genius to discover that this would be meditation. (laughs) It It still boggles me when I think about it. So the meditation practice that he discovered is just actually to observe your breath, which was probably his main practice, the arising and passing away of physical sensations, 
in the body, as we've been doing here, and also to watch uh, mental events or mind. And I'll talk a very little bit about that in this talk, but not too much. So just to retrace the path a little bit from um, where the Buddha would have started or where all of us start, the first title of the first word in the title of the talk is somebody. Based on being embodied, we all think we are someone. Um, we all think there's someone in here. When we look at someone else's body, we think it's that person. Um, to illustrate a little bit the attitude to this, last week in the New York Times there was a um, story about this unfortunate pattern of events in the Philippines where karaoke is a major pursuit. I don't know if anyone here is from the Philippines or knows the Philippines well, but apparently it's incredibly widespread and especially men like to do it. And in the article it said, it's not unusual to be walking through a village in the early morning and there'll be a karaoke machine under a tree and there'll be a guy there singing away um, under a tree. (laughs) But they've discovered that there's one song that is an incredibly dangerous song that if uh, you choose this song as your karaoke song, it's possible that someone will jump up on the stage and stab you to death. (laughs) And this song is, I did it my way. (laughs) I mean, it's it's not really funny, but it kind of is funny. (laughs) There have been some doubts. I chewed them up and spit them out. You know that. You guys know that song, right? So there was some speculation about why it would be and one of the thoughts was that because it's an easy song to sing badly and people are offended, um, <laughs> but <laughs> really it's in the article. And another idea was that um, there's quite a bit of poverty in the Philippines and that people just get kind of outraged at the idea of someone saying that they can do anything their way, that it's just sort of it's maddening. Anyway, um, This could be a great doctoral thesis if anyone wants to (laughs) pursue it. And I would like to say that it's a kind of a coarse illustration of um, how absurd it is to um, our normal kind of egoic attitude to things in which our uh, sense of self really believes that we own the body and we're in control of it or we should be in control of it such that when we get ill or um, when we... Uh, start to look kind of decrepit or even when our hair doesn't do what we want it to do, we feel distressed. (laughs) We might feel a sense of failure um, on all of those occasions, even just in having certain kinds of hair that we wish we had hair like someone else's hair, for example. Um, You could have had that from a young age. Um, So this sense of self or of being a particular unique Uh, permanent entity that's in control. Uh, It's an amazing concoction that is a kind of um, a hallucination that's projected onto our body that, um, you know, there are various explanations for why it's here or, you know, why it's developed, and I won't really go into those. There's a lot of different opinions about that. But we really don't examine it much. We just kind of live in this way thinking that there's someone in here um, enjoying all the pleasure and suffering, all the suffering. Uh, There's someone who's expressing our thoughts and our feelings, uh, some kind of self in here. 
There's someone who makes choices, and there's also an immutable essence that's always going to be me. Um, this body occupant moves with the body wherever the body goes. So if you cross the room, then this me kind of uh, goes there. So this world-building uh, apparatus that is the body takes our sense of self with it pretty much everywhere. So is there anyone here who left your sense of self at home? <laughs> or did you bring your sense of self to the talk tonight? <laughs> and doesn't everyone relate to this? I mean, doesn't this seem really how it is? Um, and there are reasons why it feels this way. Certainly the body is a sensitive organ, uh, organism so that um, it's got nerves so there are sensations and there's feeling, there are events going on. It's not like there's nothing here. Um, often the body feels pain and pleasure. Um, <clears throat> but I would like to look into this a little bit more closely. Um, the five things that I listed are actually um, the occupant of the body, the enjoyer of pleasure, the artist, the chooser, the essence. These were listed in an article in the current issue of Tricycle by Andrew Olinsky. And each of these is what's called the five aggregates, which are sort of the composite, the little elements that make up the composite of experience moment to moment. I might explain a little bit more about those at some point in the talk, if I have time. But in any case... One of the first insights that we might have in meditation practice is that we're not first that we're not always aware of our body, like um, being invited to notice its posture. You'll realize that you haven't been noticing its posture. Um, being caught up in thinking in your meditation practice, you will see that the mind and the body often seem to be separate. Um, that your mind can go home, that your mind can go to France, or your mind can go to all kinds of places that you wish that it wouldn't go, but it seems to abandon the body quite regularly and go off on its own trips. And in a sense, this capacity for separating the body and the mind is a source of great human distress. It's also the source of a lot of ingenuity. It's not all sort of a bad thing that we can imagine and project as part of our intelligence. Um, and I think it's actually part of what allows us to see or understand in some way that other people are just as important to themselves as we are to ourselves. But how odd that it takes a kind of effort of imagination to do that. And most of the time, the way we exist is that each of us is the most important person in the world to ourselves, really. Um, it's kind of... I don't know if it's a transcendent fact or a repugnant fact, but it seems to be a fact. And we, um, by being the intelligent creatures that we are, we see that other bodies also contain other minds and contain other senses of self that are equally precious, equally poignant, equally challenged as we are. I just came back from teaching a re uh, retreat in Massachusetts, or I just came here from teaching a retreat in Massachusetts, and I had an experience on the retreat about that had to do with the separation of body and mind in kind of a good way. I was sitting there meditating, and um, suddenly some thoughts arose that my stomach was a little bit too large, and I didn't like it. 
And also then from there it was that I'm getting old and that I'm not exercising enough and that I eat too much and all, you know, just a sort of general thing like this. And all of a sudden I realized that actually my body had no opinion about itself (laughs) because that it was just there. It was getting old and, you know, presumably it kind of likes the amount of food that I'm eating. (laughs) It's probably happy. Um, And suddenly I felt a lot of tenderness for this body just as itself, as it was. Um, Going through its arc of life, sort of sustaining my mind perhaps in some way, but just having a completely neutral and impartial, maybe sort of affectionate attitude towards seeing just as it was. And this other thing that I had been doing or that my mind had been doing, this kind of angry overlay, um, didn't affect it very much, but it actually was painful. So it was nice to just allow the body to be itself and have a little separation from the things that my mind does, you know, to me or to it, based on uh, what? Actually, it's not just to sort of say um, that I'm a ridiculous creature for having these kinds of uh, thoughts and responses. There's so many forces in our society that conspire to make life difficult for people who are ill or who look different or as we age and we all um, see that sort of our position in the world changes or the response of the world changes. It's great when you're young and beautiful and then suddenly things start to change a little bit the older you become. And we're all kind of involved in this process of judgment and opinion about the body. So when Shaila gave you the homework the other week, it was actually, it's actually a very, very important and liberating thing um, to take a little bit of the somebody out and to look at your body as any body, as a body. I practiced this in the airplane for some period of time knowing I was coming here, so I kind of deliberately stripped down all the cultural part of my perception and I just looked around and I can do, we can all do it here. It's just to look at everybody as having a body here and it's sort of particular in the hair on top of the head and stuff, but there's something very sweet about this and also a little strange, like our bodies are odd, I think. Um, Why don't we have hair like a tiger (laughs) or a poodle? Why don't we have tails? And... (laughs) Dogs don't look as old as they age because they're all covered with fur. You can't see quite so many wrinkles. (laughs) So anyway, the anybody part of the talk, um, I would like us all to begin to focus in a little bit closer and just see the body as a body. And in this, we're following somewhat the Buddha's instructions. Now, science will look at a body, our bodies, this way. Um, Darwinians don't accept a solid self either. They, um, and if you look at how our sensory input is put together, now if we imagined where our self is, like maybe it's in your heart or something, but I think for a lot of us it would be just behind your eyes. I think that when I think about where I am in my body, I feel like there might be someone driving inside my head, Right? <laughs> Like somebody operating heavy machinery, you know, the little glass thing that the person sits in, the, oper- the forklift operator, the steam shovel operator, something like that. 
But in fact, there is, or like a little walnut in there, maybe. I'm not, it doesn't have to be so literal, not a person, but a little, some little place. But the actual reality is that it's an incredible composite, um, how our experience comes together. So many different systems of memory and perception, and save from the eye to go to the brain to remember. Say if you see a golden retriever running toward you across a field of green grass, all the things that have to happen, including the, you know, the coming together of the visual experience, but also um, even memories of what the fur might feel like and all that stuff, it almost involves your entire nervous system all the time. Just think about something like an emotion, all the things that have to be wired together, like your tear ducts, your facial muscles, your intestines, your, your the little erector muscles that make your hairs on, on your skin stand up, your brain, and some outer object. And it Sometimes you can be afraid of things that you even just think about that haven't, many times we're afraid of things that haven't happened and may not happen. Like um, every time I go in a plane, I, it does cross my mind that this thing could fall from the sky. Um, so afraid of things that you can't see or that uh, you remember, that you've heard of. It's all extremely, extremely complicated. And if you look deeply into the body in this scientific way, you'll, you won't find anyone in there. There's not someone inside if you knocked on the door and it would open up the door and say, I am here. (laughs) Or if you look into the history of your body, it required two people to come together in some fashion, even if it's only somehow in a dish and then a turkey baster, but still those two elements have to happen. And um, so we think that we're an us, but we look, if you look in very far in any direction, this picture is not really very stable. Actually, in the same newspaper as the Philippine story, there was a story about how Jeffrey Burbage, the sense astronomer, had just died, who discovered in 1957 that all the elements that are in the human body come from stars. So the carbon in our bodies is billions of years old. And I think that's kind of worth thinking about. We're not very far from the stars, and actually we need the stars to keep the plants alive that we eat, um, or that the animals eat that we eat. Um, So it's all tremendously interconnected, and we wouldn't be able to exist without all of it, really all of us, as much as we would like to feel eternal and self-sufficient. So if we examine our concept of the body versus the experience of the body, our notion of kind of a body is almost as artificial as our notion of having a particular self or of being a particular being. If you look at the body, it's constantly changing. We talked about that a little bit, like the baby. Um, There's also no one body, like if you think of... um, how much of your body would you have to subtract before you wouldn't call it your body anymore? Um, Can you, is it the arm, the leg, the the head? It has many parts. It's the same idea as like, how can you point at this room that we're in? Would you be able to point at the room, point out the room to someone? As I mentioned before, the concept of your body or your self-image can be extremely distorted. There's that whole thing of phantom limb syndrome where you can actually have sensations uh, from a leg that isn't there. 
or even my own, as I was reporting to you, my distaste for my body was based on an image in my mind that wasn't actually the same as my stomach at all. Or the times when I think I look really great. Um, those are probably distorted <laughs> in some direction also. So in this practice, as we begin to allow um, the experience of the body, then we start to leave the realm of concepts behind altogether. So I was hoping that as you were raising your arms into the air, if you did that experiment, I didn't really open my eyes to watch, that you felt uh, to some degree some little bit unusual or not habitual sensations, or as sometimes when the arm is up, you can kind of feel as if there isn't an arm at all. There's just some kind of tingling that's floating there. Um, when you start to experience the body in this way, you start to see that the body is actually really quite a big mystery and that it doesn't fit together like on a logical plane in quite the same way. Like when you enter the experiential realm, you enter a realm of great mystery. There's an excellent book that goes into this in quite a bit of depth called um, Touching Enlightenment with the Body by Reggie Ray. So if anyone is interested, um, he kind of expands on the sense of body as mystery to a great degree. What we discover when we start to look into the body in this deep way is we see that what we call the body is something that is appearing and disappearing rapidly that has um, patterns of energy that are moving and swirling through it, where emotions feel kind of like flavored energy, something like that. Uh, Emotions are very physical. And to begin to see the body in this way uh, releases a tremendous amount of psychic and even physical energy. It can be very restful not to be maintaining the concept of the body and the concept of the self quite so tightly. There's a kind of relaxation that happens. There's a sense of being in the flow with the flow, allowing the sensations to come and go in our direct awareness. And very often the sense of solidity begins to soften. And um, our sense of our being, it's not me in my body anymore. It becomes a lot less dualistic. And we start to feel something more like our life or our embodied life is happening. So over time, the practice of meditation can be to uh, repeatedly visit and learn to dwell uh, more directly and more fully in this level of sensations just as they are the tingling at the back of the hand or the coolness of the breath as it touches your nose. Just a very direct, wordless experience that, um, well, you it's like the proof of the pudding is in the eating. Is That, is, um, that expression actually points to that. That, um, you know, no one, no one can uh, really eat or taste the sugar for you. Um, That's kind of the level of experience that we're talking about. And when we live a little bit more on this level, here's a nice quotation from Krishnamurti about this. To look at myself without any formula, 
can one do that? He's thinking, yes. If you don't do that, you can't learn about yourself, obviously. Maybe I say I'm jealous, but the very verbalization of that fact or that feeling has already split me apart from it, right? So what would it mean to live emotions in an embodied way? Well, one thing that uh, can sometimes happen and certainly happened to me as during a period of my meditation practice was that I discovered a lot of uh, parts of myself that I had repressed and denied and that I wasn't very comfortable with. Um, there were things um, uh, that had occurred to me through my life that I hadn't really been able to experience very fully and many of these rejected experiences came back um, into my consciousness during a long period of meditation practice. Um, they were kind of somatically uh, stored memories that were still kind of living under the threshold of consciousness in my body. And it took me some time of uh, working in different ways with these experiences to integrate them and become conscious of them and kind of defuse. It was as if all the things that I hadn't been able to tolerate were like these bombs that I'd buried in my subconscious through the body and that um, as I worked in with body work and therapy and stuff like that, it all started to come together much differently and much more easily so that I now feel like I enjoy quite a lot more ease of being. I won't say it was a very comfortable uh, period of my life to do this um, since... It was almost like a wilderness, being lost in a kind of wilderness where many of the people that I hired or paid to help me weren't able to really help me very directly. But nonetheless, it's to some, uh, in some way, we flopped across the, the swamp together and kind of ended up a little bit on the other side. But there is a way in which, like living somatically, you can start to unblock a lot of your deep narratives um, about your life, about who you are. We've, I've already touched on a little bit of that. The body is really a gateway to many things, and um, without going into it very much, every, it's been shown that pretty much every emotion is, uh, has to be registered through many body systems, which is why when we habitually uh, live in a very compressed and, and uh, difficult uh, mental state, it does affect our overall health and being able to be a little bit more relaxed and happy will contribute to physical health to some degree anyway. The way of working through or moving with these kinds of experiences is really to experience the emotions in a physical sense. To feel them directly as they, uh, as they move through the body allows them to move and in meditation, um, we train ourselves to some degree to uh, relax or release the sense of the story that's going through our minds or the, the concepts or beliefs or uh, repetitive um, thoughts where we're replaying many times memories or pre-playing some kind of anxious experience that we might have and drop into the body and actually feel, uh, feel what we're feeling rather than talking to ourselves about what we're feeling. This is a really important um, meditational strategy to do that anytime you find yourself 
in any kind of difficult pattern of thinking or um, some kind of, you know, uncomfortable state, try to let it move through you physically rather than uh, staying in the story. And I also am sure that Shaila has talked about this. Um, and if she hasn't, I know now she will. Um, <laughs> What happens when we start to experience our um, our existence in this way is that we start to see the universal characteristics that the Buddha talked about, primarily uh, the impermanence of our emotions. Um, these things kind of come and go, they're like tides of energy. And at times when the awareness is quite clear, you can see an emotion coming and going without it's actually happening to anyone. It's as if it has its own life. Um, if the story is not quite so tight around it, it's just a kind of physical event. Often um, when my awareness is strong and it touches one of my own emotions, very often I'll say that the way that awareness is prompted in my life is by something not being easy or not being fun or being a little feeling a little bit difficult and because of having spent a lot of time meditating, it's like that becomes a signal like, oh, I should pay attention to this. I shouldn't be, rather than struggling this way, I'm going to drop into the body and try to feel this emotion directly, physically. Um, and with that, it starts to almost break apart. The, it starts to impact on my consciousness pretty much the same way the sensation of the tingling of your hand might do. It just starts to feel like something that's happening. It's hard to explain unless, it, uh, unless you know what that shift might feel like. Um, one way of experiencing it, perhaps, is some people have a lot of sensation in your heart area. Like sometimes there can be sort of pain in your heart, pain that you carry in your heart or pain that arises in the heart when you think about things that are sad or difficult or the challenges that are in everybody's life, you might actually feel some physical kind of sharpness or tightness or hardness, or some people feel something like a rock there. And if you're willing to just open your awareness to it and accept those sensations and feel and explore them as a kind of emotional, emotional, physical um, experience, you might see that they that your relationship to them can change considerably. This is an experiment that um, you might like to try. Sometimes you can just allow, um, as you're doing breathing meditation, let the breath, imagine the breath kind of moving up and down over your heart and whatever you feel in that heart area, see if you can just turn toward it and accept it and sense it as a sensation. Sometimes you might not feel anything, which is also fine. So you might feel something wonderful, you might feel something difficult, you might feel something nondescript, and all of those things are okay from the point of view of meditation. So the Buddha said that paying attention to the body in and of itself, or paying attention to the body in the body, meaning while dwelling in the body as an embodied being, Ardent, alert, and mindful. It is the direct path for the purification of beings, for the overcoming of sorrow and lamentation, for the disappearance of pain and distress, 
for the attaining of the right path and for the realization of freedom. What, one way I think is very helpful to think of this wonderful statement, which has a kind of King James Bible ring to its very majestic language, um, is that in the moment of paying attention to body sensations in this way, that is when it happens. Uh, when he's talking about the purification of beings, a little bit what he means is to unblock yourself from the repetitive narratives about who I am and how I am and what I am in relationship to other people or how I should be, but just to be able to experience yourself directly without comparison. For the overcoming of sorrow and lamentation, um, I just sort of tried to describe what that might be like if you pay attention to the sensations in the in the heart with sorrow, when you might say be passing through a time of great sorrow, if you can bring a tremendous attention to your experience and kind of hold your experience um, with some relationship to your actual physical body, it helps you digest it uh, much more easily. It helps you uh, hold yourself, have compassion for yourself if you really remember that you're physically based. So this is really using skills of directing your attention um, as if you can learn more and more to place your attention where you want it to be, to link your attention to your physical experiences. There's a whole other level now to the no-body part of the talk, which is um, relatively short since we need to leave at nine and there's four minutes left. When you come to these experiences and you begin to see how incredibly fleeting they are, how rapidly the impermanence of the body moves, you'll see that in some sense um, there's no body really here at all. It is rather like a very fast-moving kind of physics molecule or something like that that the sense of solidity that's there is just nothing more than a sense of solidity, that there is no solid body at all. That this we can find that um, sometimes as we're trying to experience the body, we may find there are areas of no sensation. And when you look into that, you might find that that part of the body is composed of space, just a sensation of space. There are times in meditation where your body might vanish entirely and you can't experience it at all. This is a genuine experience. It's not a hallucination or it's not any more of a hallucination than the hallucination of your solid body. This is the kind of thing that tends to happen when you have been in retreat um, for some time. And it's very mysterious and very illuminating when you start to see that... um, you've kind of had a mistaken identity all your life, thinking that you're really a self and thinking that you really like have a body or are stuck in your body or are owner of your body. And sometimes through these moments of uh, seeing the ephemeralness or the transparency or the spaciousness of the body, this sense of uh, mistaken identity becomes very liberating there might be a sense of a complete release from all the constraints of uh, the heaviness of our life, uh, of dragging our body around. So um, that's just a sort of a hint of uh, what's available if you continue the Buddhist practice um, 
to its end, but there's a great deal of benefit to be had before uh, your body disappears. I'll just finish the talk by reminding us about how the body is a teacher. Um, In Buddhism, we talk a lot about letting go. And the body will teach us in that way also, that if we don't learn to let go of it while we have it, while we're alive, then it will let go of us at some point. The French philosopher Montaigne said, don't worry if you don't know how to die. Nature will take care of that for you (laughs) very efficiently. (laughs) So I guess the point of the talk is that if you truly do understand the nature of this body, the nature that this body already has, then you'll be an awakened being. And in some of the Buddhist traditions, they like to say that all of us are Buddhas. And in a sense, we're all Buddhas because of having bodies, that if we really understand this body from the inside, then we'll actually know we're Buddhas instead of just... um, being Buddhas that someone else is saying that we are. In conclusion, I'll repeat um, the Buddha's quote. In this fathom-long body, I declare is the origin of the world, the cessation of the world, and the path leading to the cessation of the world. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.com dot org slash donate